This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to the Country Hour today across South Australia and Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff and today I am fortunate enough to be broadcasting from just about the banks of the River Murray. We're in downtown Renmark today on what is a glorious day, a cool start, a cool start to the morning, but it's really opened up to one of those classic late autumn Riverland days with a little bit of smattering of clouds, but uh, largely blue skies and uh, a sunny day. It took a while to warm up, but it's uh, certainly uh, about 18 or 19 degrees now across this region, so lovely spot to be overlooking the river, and uh, it is wonderful to see the river in full flow at the moment, but delivery of the... Uh, current phase of the uh, $13 billion Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which is arguably one of the country's largest and most ambitious environmental reforms, hangs in the balance so with just two years to go before major water-saving deadlines are to be met. Now, whichever party forms government will have to deliver that water, although just about everyone involved has said... Uh, might not happen, might not uh, meet those deadlines uh, with the, the way water is being recovered at the moment. It's an important issue for river communities. It's one on canvas with the Liberal and Labor candidates vying for your vote in the seat of Barker. I'll also tell you about the little-known history of the Woolanook Japanese internment camp here in the Riverland. It's a history festival this month of uh, May. And uh, while many of you may know about the Love Day camp, uh, the Woolanook one has a fascinating history that is also related to the Renmark Irrigation Trust, which is where we're broadcasting from today. A lovely uh, sandstone building that is uh, just quite close to the banks of the River Murray in downtown Renmark. So wonderful to have the hospitality of the Renmark Irrigation Trust today. But you can hear the cars going past. That's because we, uh, as I said, uh, on the uh, edge of uh, one of the main streets in Renmark. But uh, as I said, we are talking Barker issues today. They, uh, It's one of uh, three huge federal seats that take in large parts of rural South Australia. Uh, it stretches from the southeast to the Riverland. There's plenty of issues kicking around, but uh, we're here to hear today what uh, the two major parties are going to do to address them. So I'll introduce them to you now. Tony Passon is the Federal Liberal member. He joins me in Renmark. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Cassie. And Mark Braze is the Labor candidate. He's joined us on the phone from the southeast. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Good afternoon, Tony. Gentlemen, thanks so much for your time. Now, uh, we'll start with the... Uh, what farmers say is a big roadblock to attracting ag workers and farmhands, and that is the rental shortage uh, and the community infrastructure like uh, childcare and things like that to, to try and not just attract but retain workers in, in areas like the Riverland where it's uh, such a premium at the moment to get uh, workers. Now, Tony Passon, what will a re-elected Liberal national government do to ease that pressure? Well, Cassie, you're right to identify it as a real issue. I mean... Um Agriculture's up and about, and as a result, there's um, bullish demand for workers. Um, one of the challenges uh, is being able to house those workers appropriately. And uh, your listeners are to be aware of a number of government programs which have done a lot to get Australians into home ownership. There are 300,000 Australians in home ownership because of programs like Home Builders, uh, our Home Builder, and, the, and others. But the reality is, we need to get uh, more housing stock in regional communities. There are a number of ways of going about that. One, the real challenge is 
what we're not seeing is investor activity in that housing market in regional Australia because capital growth is limited and there are other jurisdictions, other places where... It's not in the last uh, two years. No, but it's a relative question, Cassie, and the reality is you can see more capital growth in a place like Victor Harbour or on the east coast of Australia relative to downtown Remark, where we are today. So what we need to do is find ways to incentivise that investment, whether it's private investment in the sense of uh, an owner-occupier or otherwise. Uh, And I do note people are rising to the challenge. I mean, the Perilla Fresh Produce, the Pie family in um, downtown Perilla, uh, have relocated their washing plant to Perilla, and there's a challenge there with housing and accommodation. So the employer is taking... Um, some of the responsibility there. And, of course, we provide uh, attractive incentives uh, from government to ensure that those, whether it's the instant asset write-off or other programs to incentivise that kind of kind of rollout. But the other part of this solution is the cost of developing blocks. So in some locations in my community, I was in uh, Lamaru recently, it costs about $30,000 to develop a block, but a block is worth a fraction of that in a region and a community like Lamaru. So NIFIC, the National um, Infrastructure Finance Authority, is available to local councils and others to provide that infrastructure so blocks can be marketed competitively. It's it's a real challenge. No one is hiding from it. Uh, but I've got to say, it's a good problem to have. I mean, not that long ago in this community, we were struggling for population growth. Right now, um, we've got... Trying rec- to find them homes. Rec- record unemployment, um, people wanting to invest more capital employ more Australians and if the biggest challenge we've got to deal with is building homes for them to 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 occupy I think that's a, a one of the good problems to have and Mark Brace does the ALP have a policy to address these issues that that I went through with the shortage of rental properties and community infrastructure Cassie uh, Labor does have a regional first home buyers scheme uh, which would help up to 10,000 first home buyers a year in regional Australia by home um, it's a, it's a home buyer support scheme which provides government guarantee of up to 15% eligible first home buyers. So locals with a 5% deposit can avoid paying mortgage insurance, saving up to $32,000. How would you address the issues that have been raised around that with uh, potentially that adding fuel to what is already quite a hot market? Yeah, it's an issue, isn't it? It's always about getting balance. Um, as Tony said, it's a, it, it's if the biggest problem you've got is this, then that's a reflection of demand in the regional areas, and we all understand that. Um, but it is a wicked problem. It's about trying to get that balance right, Cassie. Um, Labor Party believes this is a, a good positive program that will support people. And uh, another big, I mean, we're looking at the river now. The River Murray is one of the uh, most contentious, contentious issues in the country, not just in this part of the world, but it is the lifeblood of regions like the River Murray. Mark Brace, has Labor, um, well, Anthony Albanese all but confirmed that Labor was going to use buybacks uh, potentially, if necessary, to uh, extract water to reach the 450 gigalitres required under the Murray-Darling Basin plan. How... Would a Labor government go about doing that without causing difficulties within the communities that that would need the water that that would come from? I think the first thing to say is to make it abundantly clear that uh, uh, Labor does not have a policy of compulsory acquisition of water entitlements, so it doesn't have a plan to use buybacks 
uh, it was clear there's been some some commentary around last resort, but only voluntary. I think we need to go back to first principles, Cassie. Um, you're right to say uh, that the Murray-Darling Basin itself is a critical part of Australia and produces massive amounts of our agriculture, horticulture and our wealth. And the fact is that that 450 gigs, which is enshrined in, in the legislation, which has been promised, just needs to be delivered. And I don't pretend that that doesn't have its difficulties because we only have to look at commentary from different states that point to the difficulties there. What Labor's committing to, though, Cassie, is making sure that that is delivered because it's essential. It's essential to ensure the whole of the river system remains healthy and productive. What uh, Would Labor scrap the socioeconomic requirements that the uh, coalition brought in uh, in the last couple of years to ensure that there isn't as much impact, though, on these river communities? No, no, no intention to scrap the uh, socioeconomic neutrality test. I, I mean, I, I really implore all the commentary around this to be based in not setting the hairs running on fear. I mean, Cassie... It's essential. I think everyone agrees that it's essential. It's not a figure that was plucked out of the air. It's regarded as essential. And we all understand that to ensure the river across its whole length is healthy, we need to make sure it's healthy within South Australia. And I just think South Australia's owed this. Everyone's owed it. And there you are, right? Right on the riverbank there in Riverland, uh, in, in, uh, in Renmark. And we know how the work, the positive work that's been done generations ago to ensure that water, water use there is done so effectively. So, no, it's about goodwill. It's about being open and an elected Albanese government, I've got no doubt at all, would step up to the plate and do everything possible to ensure this water is obtained. I'll bring Tony Passon into the conversation now. By um, not... Uh, necessarily going to, to buybacks and having the socioeconomic uh, requirements on uh, getting water back for the environment. How will the coalition deliver the water that is under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan to be delivered to South Australia, the 450 gigalitres, if buybacks are going to continue to be ruled out? Let, let's be clear, Cassie. Uh, the plan makes it plain that 2750 gigalitres needs to be returned and additional 450 subject to, very importantly, and I'm pleased you put it to mark the socio-economic neutrality test. If we're dealing with that, the reality here is there is a real difference. And I'm pleased that it's being highlighted today between the Labor Party's position and the Liberal Party's position. The Labor Party's position, as I understand Mark's position, is we will do our best to recover the water, but if we fail to get there, we will use buybacks to ensure we get there. Um, that's not our position. Our position. How do you actually get the water? No, but our position is consistent, Cassie, with what the legislation says. The legislation says you must uh, use your best endeavours to get the additional 450. And we need to be clear. Some people talk about that as the only environmental water. It's not. There's 2750 before you get to the 450. But our position, consistent with the legislation, is we will recover that 450, subject to and only if we can do it in a way that causes no socio-economic harm. And I've got to tell you, if buybucks is your position which is not ours, we've ruled it out, buybacks kill communities. Uh, walk up and down the main street of Remark, go to Berry, go to Loxton, go to Wakery, ask anyone 
what happened during the buybacks period. And what they will say is a disproportionate amount of water left the district. Uh, you'll effectively see a com car turn up with a bureaucrat in it, walk into the Remark Club with a checkbook and start writing out checks. Now, that money ultimately will leave the region, no doubt, but the water does too. There is already too much water leaving this community, Cassie, as it is traded, as it can be. Up, up the river. And then what that will effectively mean is the infrastructure that is left to pipe the water around the riverland becomes more expensive to maintain, less growers to do that, it becomes less competitive. Now, the other um, um, uh, situation I want to address here is there's this suggestion that this 450 will come from everywhere other than South Australia. Now, that's rubbish. Uh, South Australia's contribution of the 450 will be about 32 gigs and Coincidentally, we're here at the RIT, the Remark Irrigation Trust, the number one water holder in the nation, uh, well, in South Australia, South Australian licence holder number one. Uh, it manages about 32 gigs. So effectively what the Labor Party is saying is, look, we'll do our best to try and recover this water using other means, but if we can't use other means, we'll come into this community and we'll re- remove 32 gigalitres uh, via buybacks. And that's effectively the whole of the Remark Irrigation District. Now, it won't just happen in Remark. It'll be effectively spread across the Riverland. But anyone who understands the Riverland will understand how catastrophic that will be. And the reality is we simply can't do that if you're going to meet the socioeconomic neutrality test. Now, you ask me how we're going to do it. We're going to do it continuing to use programs like we've used. Coffee, 3IP, off-farm efficiencies. There are ways to invest. Farms was discontinued. Sure, but there are ways to invest to ensure that we can continue to recover this money in ways that don't harm communities. Now, the off-farm efficiency program is something we're continued, continuing to commit to. We want to ensure that we can produce the same... Um, outcomes using less water and the dividend uh, is provided by way of a water saving to the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. Now, that's an expensive way of doing it, no doubt. It costs the Commonwealth more to do that, but the advantage uh, is that the communities are sustained as resilient places. The very cheap, easy, nasty way is to come in and uh, use buybacks. It's like getting a sledgehammer when a scalpel is required. But there's also not really any consequences for not delivering the 450 gigs on top of the other environmental water as well. So is there really any motivation for the government to deliver this efficiency water as part of the plan in two years' time, by two years? Well, the plan is the plan, Cassie, and it's not my plan. It's our nation's plan. And it's two gigs have been recovered. How are you going to get 448? But let's go back to first principles. Uh, What does the plan say? The plan says you aim, you recover 2750. I've done a lot of work in regards to that target. The additional 450 is subject to that neutrality test. So I know people fixate on the number, but they forget often, which you haven't, um, given your expertise, that there is a a, a socioeconomic neutrality test embedded in the legislation because the decision makers way back when knew that they didn't want to effectively rip this productive, additional productive water out of communities only to harm those communities. We've got to get the balance right. And um, I've I've got to say, um, by reintroducing the concept of buybacks, um, the Labor Party have um, pushed the pendulum, I say, too far towards uh, protection away from production. I'm speaking with uh, Tony Passon, the Liberal member for Barker, and uh, the Labor uh, member who is, not member, who, uh, candidate who is running in the seat this federal election, Mark Brace. Uh, Mr Brace, 
Labor wants to bring back the National Water Commission. What will this achieve, given there is already an Inspector General of Water Compliance? Won't this be more governance for the sake of governance? Sorry, for answer that, can I just go back, though, make something abundantly clear, which I thought I might clear at the start. The Labor Party will not scrap the socio-economic neutrality test and will not bring compulsory buybacks. Um, that needs to be absolutely clear. The Labor Party didn't put this issue on the table. It's the Liberal Party who put this issue on the table, and it's a scare campaign. And I think, to be brutally honest here, let's be, be clear about why we're in this situation. It's because Tony and his party can't influence water policy because it's the National Party who runs water policy in this nation. And whilst they do, we're not going to be able to get the outcomes that are desirable and necessary under that plan. So I think the bottom line, Cassie, is Labor has no faith at all in the ability for a coalition government to deliver on all of the requirements under that plan. And uh, it's, it's necessary, not just for South Australia, but for the whole of the basin, that this plan be delivered and all of the entitlements be delivered. But let there be no doubt, Mark Graves didn't bring this issue to the table. The Labor Party didn't bring this issue to the table. There is no policy of compulsory buybacks. There'll be no Commonwealth cars suddenly appearing across the Riverland. But Labor wants to bring back the National Water Commission on top of all the other governance that's already around. People are already feeling rather governed in the Murray-Darling Basin. What will this achieve? Well, we think Labor thinks we need to reset. And so it's committed $26 million to establish a National Water Commission to continue to drive the ongoing water reform. I mean, Tony talked about things, and Tony's clearly got a deep knowledge of this, and I, I understand that, and I respect that. There are things you can do. That's what we need to do. We need to find the goodwill to do things across the whole of whole of the, the basin, including South Australia, so that we clearly have good science backing out the proper use of water resources, bring, bringing fairness into water policy. It's essential for all of us. Let's not have the fear game. It's just not in our interest to do so. We're going to have to get to weather shortly, but in a minute, Mr Braze, do you think you could outline what you think is the most critical issue facing agriculture in South Australia and what you would do to address it? Well, it's water. It's water in my view. Um, it's water. We need to get that right. Beyond that, it's um, workers and worker shortages. I mean, that's clearly an issue. And that issue is a multifaceted one that needs to be addressed by a whole range of things. It's housing. It's availability of rental. So there's a whole pile of stuff. But for me, I've said two, but they're the top two for me. Yes. Thank you. And Mr Passon, what would you consider the most critical issue in agriculture in South Australia and how would you address it? It's an appropriately sized and skilled workforce. Um, and of course, we have a plan working through the Ag Visa to assist uh, with uh, bringing people to our communities to help with this labour task. We don't just want to bring them for six months at a time. We want them to come make their lives in regional South Australia. They can uh, bring their families. They can um, join footy clubs. They can volunteer at the CFS. They can make our communities even stronger and more resilient places to live. Uh, incredibly disappointed that the Labor Party have said they'll scrap the um, Ag Visa program, which is so important and something we should be building on, not tearing down. Thank you very much uh, to Mr Passon, Tony Passon and uh, Mark Braze from uh, the Labor candidate for, for Barker and Tony Passon, the Liberal member. Thank you so much for your time today to, to come out uh, and speak on these issues that are very important to the region. It is... Uh,
coming up to uh, 25 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff, broadcasting from Renmark, uh, pretty close to the River Murray, and uh, we'll find out now what is making uh, weather across the state. Uh, Senior forecaster Hannah Marsh joins me. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So I've been hearing about all this wild weather in Queensland, but uh, it's quite delightful here in the Riverland. What's happening in South Australia? Yeah, we're just starting to get some uh, cloud through the Riverland at the moment. But uh, this activity over Queensland is just starting to poke into South Australia in the far northeast corner. So we're starting to see some thunderstorms up around Moomba at the moment. We have a trough uh, that is in Queensland that will gradually poke into South Australia later today and uh, into tomorrow and then move eastwards again. Uh, But our weather at the moment is dominated by a high-pressure system further to the south and really we're looking at dry conditions throughout the state apart from these showers developing north and east of about Hawker and they are um, tending to showers, patchy rain areas and also those thunderstorms in the northeast and there is the possibility of some locally heavy falls with that. Having a look at temperatures, we had uh, quite a cool start around the place with uh, minus half a degree as the coolest in Coonawarra, point uh, two of a degree at Nuri Upa, but um, it has started to warm up and we've generally got uh, mild temperatures in the west and south. It is a bit cool in the far northeast with that cloud over the top as well. As we head into tomorrow, there's a possibility of seeing some early morning fog patches about Kangaroo Island, the southeastern slopes of the Flurio Peninsula, and also the west west coast and southeast districts. Uh, the shower activity tomorrow will gradually st- extend further south, so uh, it'll include the eastern parts of the Flinders, possibly the Mount Lofty Ranges uh, later in the day, and again the northeast pastoral district and extending down into the riverland as well tomorrow we're still looking at the possibility of seeing some thunderstorms in the far northeast and again that chance of seeing some locally heavy falls having a look at some of the temperatures for tomorrow we're looking at a sunny 20 degrees for Sejuna and port lincoln 19 and partly cloudy at Wyala, 20 and partly cloudy for Woomera, uh, 21 and mostly sunny at Coopapedi, Moomba 22 with that shower or two, Renmark 19 and showers, Clare 17 and a shower or two, uh, Murray Bridge 20 with that late shower or two, Victor Harbour 19 and becoming cloudy and we're looking at 21 degrees and partly cloudy at Mount Gambia. Then as we move into Thursday, uh, that shower activity in the east will continue uh, but will gradually start to ease as that trough does move further to the east. We're also looking at early fog patches about Air Peninsula and the west coast district. Then uh, by Friday, we've got a front that we're expecting to come through the west of the state on Friday and then move over the remaining parts on Saturday. And associated with that, we are looking at an increase in the shower activity. So for Friday, the showers will develop about the west and the south of the state. Then on Saturday, we're looking at uh, extending across the agricultural area 
uh, and even into the south of the pastoral districts as well. Similarly, on Sunday, uh, looking at that shower activity, um, contracting slightly to the south but remaining over uh, the agricultural area and possibly the south of the pastoral districts. Having a look at rainfall totals up to midnight on Saturday, we're generally looking at uh, 2 to 10 millimetres about the southern agricultural area and eastern border districts and then up to 5 millimetres about the remainder, but we are expecting it to remain dry in the northeast pastoral district west of Marie and the northeast pastoral district, um, sorry, the northeast of the northwest pastoral district. Falls of 10 to 20 millimetres are possible uh, with the heavier showers, rain and thunderstorms today and tomorrow. Thanks so much for that, Hannah. Hannah Marsh there from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be cloudy tomorrow and there is a very high chance of rain. It could even get quite heavy in places because there's that thunderstorm activity uh, near the Queensland border. Overnight will get down to 13 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach about 18. The lower western will be cloudy, also a very high chance of rain there, again with some heavy falls possible. Overnight temperatures will get down to 12, but the daytime temperatures will reach about 18 degrees. It's coming up to 12.30 on the Country Hour. Listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me today. I'm in sunny Renmark, standing on the balcony of the Renmark Irrigation Trust, a beautiful old building, sandstone building, looking out over the River Murray, and it is in full flow at the moment. I also had a bit of a drive around yesterday, and you can see the orange trees that this region is so famous for are heavy with fruit. You can see the bright orange globes uh, on these uh, trees so uh, it's not long now until the citrus harvest will be in full force but it's not the only fruit grown in uh, this part of the world or the only fruit that's in season at the moment soon you're going to hear from an irrigator and fruit grower about uh, some of the other produce that uh, fruit that uh, the riverland uh, grows at this time of year also, you may have heard of the Love Day internment camp near Barmera. It was one of Australia's largest internment camps during World War II. There were German, Italian and Japanese interns or internees and uh, prisoners of war. What's less well known is the role the Japanese woodcutters from the Wulmuk uh, internment camp uh, played in keeping the lights on and keeping those crucial irrigation pumps running uh, during war when many people, many men from the region were fighting overseas. So uh, I'll have more on that fascinating bit of history from this part of the world, this uh, history festival during May. Also... If you're a fan of mustard dogs, then keep, do keep listening as well because I'll have more on the custard and kelpie muster uh, that's going ahead on June long weekend. The mustard dogs was a great series and, you know, we're looking forward to series two. But the Kelpie Association have secured Frank Finger uh, and Annie will be coming down from northern Queensland for the muster this year. So we're very excited. Oh, I'm excited too. It was such a great show. It's a big trip to come down. I think uh, the local fella as well is going to pop across. Uh, but we'll get into that in about 20 minutes or so. But first, here's Wendy Glamacek with the news headlines.
Good afternoon, Cassie. The state government says 40 new vaccination halves will be up and running by the end of this month across South Australia to help boost the COVID jab rate amongst children. Education Minister Blair Boyer says the hubs will be set up in regional, public and independent schools that have been identified as ideal locations to boost rates. A new report on Australia's housing crisis is calling for more targeted solutions to address the shortage of accommodation in country areas. Over the past 18 months, regional property prices jumped by 36%, while capital city prices grew by a total of 21%. The Regional Australia Institute recommends a range of tailored policies, including relaxing planning schemes to allow one- and two-bedroom units and townhouses to be built. And the Northern Territory Chief Minister Michael Gunner has resigned, saying the birth of his second child made him consider his future. Mr Gunner will continue as the member for Fanny Bay and he'll move to the back bench. He made the announcement during his NT budget speech in Parliament. More ABC News at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Wendy. Good to have Wendy Glamachak back on the airwaves. Now, uh, I'm broadcasting from the Riverland, as I've told you, and uh, I'm at the Renmark Irrigation Trust. It's a 129-year-old organisation, I believe. It's at the heart of the fruit-growing region that Renmark is known for, and Humphrey Howie is the chairman. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So your family has been growing fruit on the same land for more than 100 years, I believe. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of change, but uh, not in the least the move to organic production in 1994. So what are you growing now? Uh, we grow mostly citrus, but we also have some avocados and some persimmons as well but mostly citrus. <laughs> it's funny you say persimmons because I think this time last year when I was talking about persimmons, my parents came to visit me and they were driving from New South Wales and they were listening to me on the radio because they don't normally listen to me because they're interstate. <laughs> but they listened to me this time and I was banging on about how much I love persimmons. Mum got here and said, I had no idea how much you liked <laughs> So, uh, yeah, my mum didn't even know how much. But I think I really only discovered them in South Australia. How's the season going for persimmons? Um, it's a little bit lighter than it was last year, but we had a really heavy crop last year. But we've... We're in the middle of the, the persimmon season at the moment. In fact, I've just come straight from the packing shed, having packed a few persimmons yet oh, this morning. Good for you. And well, we've got some dried persimmon. I've never had dried persimmon. I'm a bit excited to try it dried. Uh, for um, people who may be used to the older type of persimmon, the... the um, uh, the very the, soft type. The astringent. The, that's the astringent. But there's a new, uh, not, not new, new, but it's been around for a while, but it's not, not everyone has seen the, the, the non-astringent um, varieties. Which one do you grow? Uh, we grow a variety called gyro, uh, which is a fairly large persimmon, which you can basically eat like an apple, or you can let it go a little bit soft. I prefer it just slightly soft, and then you really get that nice, sweet sort of texture as well, as well as having a bit of firmness about it. And what's demand for persimmon like this year? Oh, it's great, actually. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, and I, and I think um, that probably goes to, to show the, the multicultural aspect, I suppose, that Australia has now become in that they are accepting far more of these, these relatively different products. Oh, they're absolutely yeah. beautiful. How long mm. have you been growing them for? Uh, about 10 years, yeah. Are they mm. easy to grow? Uh, relatively, yeah. Sort of, they don't really have too many insect problems at all. And because uh, you're growing them organically, aren't you? Well, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. We do. The odd bird comes in and has a has a bit of a chew from time to time, and um, 
Um, so that can be a bit of an issue. You also produce citrus. You're an organic citrus producer. How have you gone this year? Mm -hmm. I know the season's just about to ramp up. I think we've had a couple of... of Well, our season hasn't actually finished. We're still finishing up um, packing um, Valencia oranges. There's still a demand for those at the the moment. And um, so we'll probably finish those in about two weeks' time and then we'll probably start our... And they'll all start all over again with navels, mandarins, lemons, grapefruit, and um, yeah. So and the the season just keeps going. So it's it's almost a twelve year season, twelve month of the year uh, season for us. I guess you've got water year round here, uh, so you don't have to rely on a summer or winter rainfall. But uh, how are you going getting workers? Given it's been such a hot topic for the last two years in particular. Yeah, we're reasonably lucky, I guess, because we have um, like. Like, like I said, you know, a 12-month season, we have permanent employees who are with us um, all year round. Um, so we don't have that, that need for that great influx of um, um, sort of itinerant um, employees at a particular time of the year. So we are relatively lucky, which is a little bit unusual, I think. Um, but certainly other growers are certainly um, feeling the, the stress, I guess, of not having enough employees just to, to pick their crop. And you'd hear about that being the, the chairman of yeah. the uh, Remark Irrigation mm. Trust. What's being said around the Riverland? Oh, I think there is really that, I guess, the, sh- the shortage of uh, uh, rental properties, I think, is, is probably an issue as, as well, on top of the fact that it's, it has been difficult over the last few years getting the, the islanders uh, um, who traditionally have come over for the for the harvest, and that's been a bit a bit hard to get hold of. But um, I think that is improving. Um. And you mentioned what were you saying? Mandarins, oranges, lemons, persimmons, grapefruit. grapefruit. <laughs> There's so many things grown mm. here. And we were having a chat about why that is. You've got a bit of a theory on. That. Well. I, th- I think it's probably the diversity of crops that we have, and and I think it's only becoming more diverse with um, you know figs, quinces, pomegranates, dates, dates yeah. you know pistachios, as well as the the tradi- more traditional crops of the you know the wine grapes and the citrus and the stone fruit. So I think that the theory is, I guess, that the RIT traditionally, you know. From a, came from a basis of very small properties, and I, and I think, well, not very small properties at, at the time, they were considered quite quite economical. But these days, a ten-acre property is probably, you know, seemingly not very economical. But the, you know, the ability to sort of um, do niche products, I think, has has been helped by that fact that we do have these these smaller property sizes which does encourage sort of creativity and, and diversity in that product base so oh, being in the riverland and you're with the Renmark <coughs> irrigation trust we won't get into murray darling basin so much but uh, we're looking at the river it's full to the brim and there's uh, there's a lot of water and storages upstream as well mm. it's uh, mm. water's looking pretty secure for what two years you'd say for this region i, I would hope so yes yes what's sort of sentiment is there from farmers given that uh, water may be plentiful but input costs are quite high uh, mm. markets are a bit mucked up with supply chain issues mm. what, are you, what are people feeling about given we are heading into a, uh, a new water year come July 1? I, really, I think that really depends on the, the product that you're growing and certainly wine grapes are, are certainly suffering a downturn at the moment particularly red grapes um, so I, I guess there's not a lot of um, optimism in that in that regard however certainly the nut crops i think and are probably still experiencing pretty good uh, returns 
Uh, I think citrus is a little bit up and down still. Um, we, Remmark in particular, I guess, has suffered the last couple of year, uh, 18 months with uh, fruit fly issues. So that's been another sort of limitation on where we can actually send our produce. And that has certainly um, been a problem. I think it's very mixed, I, I would say, the, the outlook for um, how the growers are feeling. I think on the one hand, certainly water issues are not a problem at all. Um, for the next couple of years, but um, and that has been a real plus and a real bonus. Had had we been in the same position like two or three years ago, when you know the price of water was was you know six hundred dollars a megalitre, then I think um, there would be a lot of suffering, real pain, yeah, real pain. When yeah. it comes when you're looking at these input yeah. costs, and we haven't really dealt with with fruit fly, but there has been another detection. I think in the last yeah. week, Remark mm. North was it. Yeah, um, that's as far as I. And uh, so large parts of the production area in this mm. Remark area are now under fruit fly restrictions in, in movements and things like that. How much of an effect is that having? Because you're a packer as well, so so you're sending fruit around. How how is mm. that affecting the flow on as well? Well, it means that we can't send to our markets in Adelaide, Western Australia or Tasmania. Fortunately, we've still got Melbourne um, and New South Wales and Queensland that we can still send fruit to. Uh, so it certainly has had an impact and has meant some of our fruit we, we haven't been able to sell at all, which is, is, is a real problem. Um, what portion? What portion? And, um, oh, probably about 5 or 10%, I suppose. means. What's happened to it? Uh, fallen on the ground. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's or we've had not to great for fruit pies either. No, no. But fortunately, we actually have geese that eat the fruit. <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> they, they love it. That's all we need in the Riverland, more geese. We do. No. We do. <laughs> People would like that. Well, um, I mean, it sounds like there's a mick bag out there. Good season, but some struggles as well. Actually, before I let you go, we were talking yesterday, I think, about um, avocados being left on the ground in northern Queensland. Are you struggling with the, an avocado market here as well? Uh, we don't have a great deal of avocado, so we we can sell everything we grow. So we've we've been okay in that regard. I th I think it's looking more promising this season. So fingers crossed. And supply and demand imbalance. Well, thank you so much for stopping by to have a chat with me. It's been interesting hearing about uh, more than just the normal things we talk about the the wine grapes and the the big citrus that we normally talk about. So thank you so much for for taking the time to have a chat with me, uh, Humphrey Howie. Thank you very much, Cassie. Humphrey Howie there. Now, uh, we are at the Renmark Irrigation Trust, and uh, the month of May is South Australia's History Festival Month. And uh, there's some very interesting agricultural history in this part of the world. And given I'm at the Renmark Irrigation Trust, which is uh, one of the largest, uh, one of the oldest organisations, I should say, in the uh, Riverland and indeed the state, I thought it might be a good chance to look at some of the fascinating history behind this organisation. Now, Judy Bailey is with the Renmark Irrigation Trust. Good afternoon. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thanks. So uh, for the History Festival, you've been doing some research into a little-known part of South Australia's history, and that is the Woolanook Japanese internment camp. Now, people might have heard of the Love Day camp at Barmara. That was a, a very large camp. But what was the purpose of this smaller Woolanook Um So Woolanook camp was set up in 1942, in fact, exactly 80 years uh, 7th of May, the first Japanese came uh, to this area and they were basically um, sent, it was an offshoot of Love Day and what happened was uh, there was a, a huge um, shortage of manpower of uh, to cut this wood for 
um, places like ourselves, which need a huge amount of wood for um, pump for the electricity to basically drive uh, the pumps, but also th through the whole of the Riverland. So basically, uh, it, it was around, started off about 130 Japanese internees and moved right through for three years it was here. Uh, and I think they left around 240 at the end. Yes. And how did they contribute to the power supply in this region? Well, at that stage, Remark Irrigation Trust was the main supplier of electricity. So they supplied electricity to places like Berry, uh, Monash, um, uh, Lirup, and of course the Loveday internment camp, which on its own was basically a brand new town because a we thousand had odd people or something. five thousand internees right. and around fifteen hundred guards. If you think about it, that's a huge uh, area that uh, that needed electricity and all the infrastructure. So we were the main supplier at that stage. So um, this is how we we had a contract with the army. Uh, that they would supply the um, internees to cut the wood and we would be able to stoke up our fires and keep things going. So what did those fires then power? How did that get translated into power? Well, it, it was uh, how electricity... So prior to the war, there was there was a use of diesel and there was a shortage of diesel. So that's how uh, we used to do it. And then we had to transfer back into uh, using wood to fire up the boilers for both irrigation and electricity. So... Um, and also not forgetting that a lot of the woodcutters and other men who worked on the on the boats and so forth were, were of course they they you know they went to war so we didn't actually have manpower so Remark Irrigation Trust was deemed an essential service so we were then given this um, contract not just ourselves but Berry Irrigation Trust as well but it was our main. Um, role being the uh, the electricity supplier that meant that we needed the wood to keep things going. So really without those Japanese internees, the lights would have gone out? Absolutely. Yeah, and not just here in Renmark, but throughout the whole of the Riverland at that time. Uh, and obviously, as I say, with Love Day being a huge um, settlement of its own, yes. And this is History Month, and you've been, or the History Festival Month, and you've been telling people a bit about this. How many people in this region have known about the contribution of the Woolanook Japanese internment camp to the power situation during the war and have come along to ask questions? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because there are glimmers of um, awareness in the community. But we put out a, a call uh, recently and, uh, and we have about eight to ten uh, Remark people who have given us their stories. And what we're doing here is feeding back into the community their stories as well as these wonderful photos we have of the time. Uh, we've got 70 or 80 uh, photos of the Japanese here at Woolanook that were taken by the official photographer. So... A lovely mix of photographs that people can look at and think about. And, oh, yes, I was there. I remember seeing that. Um, there's also the war diaries that we're using and other Murray Pioneer, lots of historical sources. And we have, we're running about five sessions and they're virtually booked out. Where can people go if they're interested <laughs> in seeing some of these photos or diaries? Well, so um, the photos are actually at the Australian War Memorial Museum um, online. They're actually freely available. But um, they, generally speaking, um, the war diaries as well are digitally 
available. But if anybody wants to get in touch, we're more than happy to show people how to find this information. And obviously, we're putting a lot of this information on our website as well. Well, it sounds wonderful and a lovely initiative for this part of South Australia to be a part of the History Festival. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to take yeah, me through that. You. It was really interesting. Judy Bailey there from the Renmark Irrigation Trust. Uh, I'm Cassie Alba. I'm broadcasting live from Renmark today where it is 13 minutes to one. Australia votes. For the latest on the federal election, go to ABC News Digital. Policy announcements and how they impact you. Profiles of every electorate, including yours. Atney Green's Guide to the Key Seats. You Ask, We Answer is back and you can see what other Australians are asking. There's our new Get Ready to Vote checklist, plus live blogs and notifications so you won't miss a thing. For election news that matters to you, go to abc.net.au slash Australia Votes or download the ABC News app. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, I'm Cassie Half. Now, a trip to the Riverland wouldn't be complete without talking about wine. It is the uh, nation's largest producing uh, wine region. And uh, I'm going to take you back a little. We were talking about history before, and I'm going to take you back to the sort of 1950s, even before then, where fortified wines were all the rage in the 50s and 60s, but also it was a major production for Australia because our wine had to travel so far to get to the big markets in Europe and England. So to keep it better, it was also fortified. So it's really only been in that post-war period where, where table wine has been uh, drunk in Australia. But it seems like fortified wines are making a bit of a comeback. Now, Jenny Semler is from 919 Wines here in the Riverland. She joins me now. Good afternoon. How are you, Cassie? I'm well, thanks. So what's driving this resurgence? Oh, I think there's a number of things. Um, the Wine Australia did a bit of a campaign about Oh, 12 years ago now when um, Australia was signat or Australia still, still is signatory to some trade agreements where we couldn't use some of the traditional European terms like port and sherry. So uh, as, a, as a country, we've come up with new names for some of the, these styles. So yeah, Wine Australia did a bit of a marketing campaign then. But I think also um, there's been a resurgence in interest in craft distilleries, craft breweries, um, craft cideries, all of that sort of thing. And as a result, I think people are also going back to some of these other more traditional styles. Um, and it's not just Australia, it's around the world. Yeah, right. I mean, the the gin and uh, whiskey, etc. distilling is a worldwide phenomenon. But I understand that climate change is playing a bit of a role in this as well. Um Quite well could be. I mean, the the varieties that we use for some of the more traditional fortified styles do tend to favour a hot climate. They, they don't do too well in some of the cooler climates. They're too acidic and uh, you just don't get the lusciousness that you need. Whereas in a climate like the Riverland, it's just it just goes... Throw some hot weather Loves at me. Loves hot weather. Yeah, love it, love it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's remarkable that uh, what's old is new again. I guess that's always the way. Don't throw out your clothes because they'll be back in fashion. If I could fit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, not just fortified wines. I mean, we're coming into winter. Red wine's also a, a yep. bit um, of a favourite at this time of year. But reds have really been hit with the the demise of the Chinese market, the tariffs now on the Chinese market, and Australia is very much geared towards that market, and uh, a lot of grapes now are struggling to find a home. Uh, what can uh, 
we see this year from an Australian um, point of view to try and get people drinking red? Uh, look, we... We typically would do a seasonal promotion on reds and fortifieds. So we've already, um, you know, spoken to our customer marketplace and we've said, have comfort food, have slow cooked, comfort, uh, you know, hot food and drink some fortified wine and get near the fire, drink some red wine, change, rummage in your cellar for those red wine varieties. Um, certainly what we're doing is we're looking at some of the less traditional or uh, old-fashioned European Ooh, what varieties. What are we talking there? So Tariga Nacional is something that we grow. <laughs> That's a mouthful. It is. It's <laughs> actually <laughs> Montepulciano. <laughs> well, yeah, we don't do a, Montepulci- a Montepulciano, but uh, certainly the Tariga Nacional, we originally were growing for fortified, um, but we just discovered it made amazing red table wine. So we now we use it in both. Um, would you like to have a look? Look at the wine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, we do encourage people to drink uh, sensibly. And, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I'll, just show you the, I'll just show you the bottle. So there, that, this is a bottle of Tariga Nacional. Uh, it's a lovely variety for this region because... It, it looks Spanish, the way it's, it's Portuguese. spelled. Portuguese. It's Portuguese. It's spelled so. T-O-U-R-I-G-A-N-A-C-I-O-N-A-L. So, yeah, yeah. I'm probably not saying it like a, oh. a, a Portuguese would. Um, but that uh, we planted that for our fortifieds because it's the backbone of a traditional Portuguese port, um, such as a traditional vintage style. Right. Um, so this... What I'm showing you now is a fortified style. Um, and the backbone of that is Tariga Nacional, but we've fortified it uh, so it makes it a rich red wine. You treat it like a table wine, but it's a little bit more luscious and it goes <laughs> with chocolate. Well, it's always fun to hear about new varieties, and I'm glad to hear that the fortified wines are coming back, because yeah. I personally don't mind it, but as I said, uh, do drink in moderation. But thank you so much for joining You're me today. You're very welcome. Jenny Semler there, just taking us through some of the, the wines that are grown in this part of the world, maybe some new ones you might not have heard of. But uh, finally today, I did promise that I'd tell you what was happening with the Cassidy and Kelpie muster, obviously interest in the working dog exploded following the success of the uh, Master Dogs program and if you're a fan you might be interested in heading along to the Australian Kelpie Master at Casterton this year just over the border in Victoria. Uh, Master Dogs season one winner North Queensland Grazier Frank Finger and his pup Annie are expected to attend the event and Casterton Kelpie Association President Karen Stevens spoke with Grace Whiteside uh, about why she's excited that the event is going ahead after the COVID-19 hiatus. Really exciting that uh, we've um, been able to secure our COVID permits and and being able to move forward with the Kelpie muster this year. Uh, It's our 26th year, so to actually physically have a muster after two years off is is really exciting. And the feedback we've got from the community and friends of the Kelpies is just they can't wait to get here. Given that it has been running in essentially a modified version the last couple of years because of COVID, how does it feel to bring it back? Are you expecting a huge crowd? Oh, well, I think we are expecting a huge crowd, but there's just so much momentum, you know, and it, it's really interesting going back after two years and, and getting the festival organised and um, regrouping and, and, and doing things in a different way because we will have the physical festival on Saturday, the 11th of June here in Casterton, and then, of course, Sunday will be the, the working dog auction. So... 
It's our 26th year of the Australian Premier Working Dog Auction. So great things, but um, it will be at Island Park. So we'll have physical demonstrations at Island Park. And then the auction, we'll have a physical auction as well as Auctions Plus um, online. So we'll have them both this year. Set an Australian record last year, hoping to beat that again. Look, I think that one of the things that we've done is um, promote the Kelpie as a, you know, a iconic Australian working dog. But we've also, um, in more recent years, you know, really push the value every day to the farming community of what working dogs mean on their farms. We all know that we've got, um, you know, farms looking for workers and, you know, these working dogs do the work of a couple of farm hands. But, you know, 35200 sounds like a lot of money, but, you know, you don't have to pay super and you don't have to pay holiday pay. They work and work and work and just want to keep working. So, um, Oh, look, the sky's the limit, I suppose. Um, we've got some fabulous breeders from across Australia that um, support our working dog auction every year. And once again this year, we've got some really good breeds um, coming up through to the auction. So let's see what happens. I think we certainly saw the hard-working nature of working dogs in the ABC's program, Muster Dogs. I hear they're going to be involved in the festival as well. What's planned? Oh, look, Grace, we're really, really excited that um, the Muster Dogs was a great series and, you know, we're looking forward to series two. But the Kelpie Association have secured Frank Finger uh, and Annie will be coming down from northern Queensland for the Muster this year. So we're very excited. And, of course, Rob Tuck is just... Um, he resides just in Edenhope, just north of Casterton, so he'll be here as well. And uh, it's uh, just going to be really exciting just to have Frank and, and Rob back together and, and to catch up with them. So that's fantastic. Absolutely. That's a big draw for the Caston and Kelpie Festival. Uh, that was uh, Caston and Kelpie Association President Karen Stevens speaking with Grace Whiteside there. And if you haven't had a chance to see the, the Mustard Dogs yet, do go on ABC's iView. You can catch up on all the action there. And such great news that there is going to be a second season. Uh, but this uh, season, instead of focusing on Kelpies, I think they've got Border Collies instead. So... Um, Maybe there'll be another season uh, running them off against each other to see which dogs actually uh, are the superior working dog. Coming from a Kelpie family, I think I'm going to back in the Kelpie, but I do love Border Collies as well, so I'll be interested to see how that goes. That's all I have time for, though, in the Country Hour today. It's been a glorious day here on the balcony, on the veranda, I should say, of the Renmark Irrigation Trust in Renmark, looking out over the River Murray, and uh, I hope you've uh, been had a chance to listen in to what was being said about the uh, great history that's being put on uh, by the Renmark Irrigation Trust. Go to their website if you want to see more about the Woolanook internment camp. It sounds like uh, there's a fascinating history there. Also, uh, had a lovely text in following my, my conversation with Humphrey Howie about the variety of crops he's growing. Dazza has texted in to say that if one invests money, diversified portfolios are a given. It seems this fellow is benefiting in the same way, the diversity in crops and rotation seasonally, meaning there's always a plan B or C when one crop is impacted. And so financially and employment-wise, the outcomes are more stable all round. So uh, great to, to hear that there's uh, some positivity in this part of the world that has 
has done it tough in recent years. But that's all I have time for. I will have one more day in uh, Renmark, though. I'll be in Renmark tomorrow as well. But right now, it's coming up to 1 o'clock. Time for news. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.